Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. For today's episode, I'm joined by a really lovely cup of hot tea. I'm going to do my best to not spill the tea, whether that's literally or metaphorically, but given my clumsiness, who knows what's going to happen. In today's study guide, I'm going to be covering the story of James Knox Polk, three-syllable name, one-term president. James Knox Polk's presidency definitely came up in your high school's American history curriculum, even if his name didn't specifically come up, because his presidency includes a really important high point of American history, aka the oh-so-simple Mexican-American War. As a result, I would consider James Knox Polk to be a fairly important American president. That being said, he usually isn't put on the top five best American presidents list for reasons that I'm really excited to explore at the end of the episode. I definitely think James Knox Polk is an underrated president, and I'm excited to talk about that. His study guide, in addition to having a war, also includes some Freemasons, a really sad lack of dueling, and a possible accidental castration. Let's begin. James Knox Polk is born November 2nd, 1795, somewhere in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. He is the first of his parents' 10 children, and his parents are Samuel Polk and Jane Knox, hence where the Knox Polk comes from. Both of his parents are from Mecklenburg County, and both the Knox and Polk families had been living in the county for generations at that point. Both of James Knox Polk's grandfathers fought for the U.S. during the American Revolution, and by the time James is born, his family is extremely anti-federalist. Yes, they love the United States, but they don't necessarily love the federal government. Instead, they want the system to be much more focused on the states. By the time James is born, his father, Samuel Polk, is a slave owner and owns a moderately sized farm. The Polk family is never going to be as wealthy as, say, the Jeffersons or John Tyler, but they're not living in poverty, unlike some of the other presidents I'll be talking about in future episodes. Early on, there is some tension in the Knox Polk family, and this is going to be over religion. James's mother, Jane, is extremely religious. She's a Presbyterian, and she takes her faith extremely seriously. But his father, Samuel, is a deist. He is very skeptical about religion, which leads to a point where baby James isn't allowed to be baptized, which causes quite a bit of family tension. James Knox Polk ultimately is going to be pretty a-religious for most of his life. As a president, he's going to be fairly religiously tolerant, which is pretty rare for the time. As president, his 
feeling towards the Mormons, which are a concept that's popping up in the 1840s, is eh, let them do their own thing. Anyway, that's sort of what's going on in the Knox Polk family. In 1803, James's grandfather moves from the Carolinas to the new territory of Tennessee, which has been set up thanks to the 1783 Land Grab Act. There is all this new land that's available for not that much money, and the Knox Polk family decides to take advantage of that. In 1806, James's father, Samuel, decides to follow his father and move the entire family to Tennessee. They end up settling in Maury County. Because they are one of the first families to settle in the county, pretty soon the Knox Polk family has a ton of local influence. Samuel Polk becomes a judge, he gets to make a lot of local decisions, and pretty soon he befriends another local, this guy named Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson and Samuel Polk hit it off really quickly because, as it turns out, they have a lot of similar political beliefs, i.e. they're both anti-federalist and really, really like Thomas Jefferson. The friendship between Andrew Jackson and Samuel Polk is going to be really important later on in James Knox Polk's life. But we're not there yet. As a child, James Knox Polk doesn't exactly have the most exciting life. He's a really sickly kid. As it turns out, he has some pretty serious kidney issues, aka kidney stones. By the time he's 17, James Knox Polk's kidney stones are so bad that the family decides he needs to get operated on. And remember, we're in the early 1800s. Having any sort of operation, much less one in the groin region, is a serious undertaking. There's no anesthesia, so you're pretty likely to die of shock on the operating table. And if you don't die of shock on the operating table, there's a fun little thing called an infection that you might die of. So you're pretty much risking your life by getting these kidney stones removed. Spoiler alert, James Knox Polk isn't going to die from this operation, but it's going to be pretty traumatic. Originally, the operation is supposed to happen in Philadelphia under the watchful eye of one of the top surgeons in the United States, but Polk is in so much pain at this point that he physically cannot make the trip up to Philadelphia. So, so instead, the operation happens in Kentucky and is done by a surgeon who does not quite have the same level of bona fides. During the operation, the only painkiller that Polk gets is some brandy, which, you know, it's fun. James Knox Polk does end up surviving the operation, which is good, but he most likely is left sterile due to the operation. In the process of cutting through his flesh and removing the stones, the surgeon most likely nicked something and basically performed some sort of castration. As a result, James Knox Polk never had any children, but his health did improve 
after getting the kidney stones removed, and he was able to start going to a proper school for the first time in his life. And once he was at a proper school, it turned out James Knox Polk was amazingly smart. He ended up graduating in the top of his class, even though he started out his education not knowing any Greek or Latin. Pretty soon, everyone was like, oh my god, James, you are a total nerd, and we fucking love it. In January 1816, James Knox Polk started attending University of North Carolina because his uncle was a trustee there, and hey, who doesn't use a little bit of nepotism? His roommate during his time at UNC would later be the governor of Florida because basic college experience, am I right? During his time at UNC, James Knox Polk became super involved with the debate team and eventually became its president. It was at UNC that he realized that, yeah, I like arguing. I like getting people to agree with me. And my theory is if we didn't have debate and nerdy high school and college kids getting on debate teams, the world probably would be a much better place, but that's just my opinion. After graduating from UNC, James Knox Polk moved to the city of Nashville and started working for a famous lawyer, Felix Grundy, and pretty soon he got a reputation for being good at his job. In 1819, Grundy became a member of the Tennessee State Senate and brought James Knox Polk along with him. Quickly, Polks got a job as the clerk for the Tennessee State Senate, which meant that he got to control all of the state Senate's legislative paperwork, which gave the young James Knox Polk, one, a ton of power, and two, a higher salary than actual state senators, which really isn't that shabby for a 24-year-old. He would serve in the position of the state senate's clerk until 1822, and during his time in this job, he got a reputation for being extremely nitpicky. For example, once he refused to process paperwork for Sam Houston because it wasn't filled out properly. The next year, in 1820, James Knox Polk joined the Tennessee State Bar. His first case as a lawyer in Tennessee was defending his father against a public fighting charge, and he won the case, which I'm sure made his dad super happy. He quickly opened his own law office, which began doing very well, so things are looking good for James Knox Polk. He has this well-paying job as the clerk for the Tennessee State Senate. He has a successful law firm. What else does he need? Well, two things. A wife and a political career. And have no fear. James Knox Polk is going to get both of those. First, the political career. In 1822, James Knox Polk ran to be in the Tennessee House of Representatives and he won. While he was running for this position, he joined the local Freemasons branch in order to make political connections, because you know, Freemasons, Illuminati, it's all connected. And he also decided to serve as a captain in the local militia to also get some more fun 
connections. He spent over a year campaigning and making various connections, and it all paid off. He got a reputation for being an excellent orator. He ended up getting the nickname the Napoleon of the Stump due to his great public speaking skills. And then there was also the fact that he would buy drinks for people who voted for him, which helped him win his election, and which definitely isn't sketchy in the least. The next year, after he won his election to be in the Tennessee House of Representatives, he got married. His wife was Sarah Childress, the daughter of a super wealthy merchant. James and Sarah's relationship went way back. The two most likely first met when she was 14, and they were taking lessons from the same tutor. But the two most likely didn't properly get introduced until a bit later. Sarah was very outgoing and loved to chat, while James Knox Polk was pretty quiet around other people and a little awkward. But the two hit it off, fell in love, got married, had a great working relationship. During this time, once James Knox Polk was in the Tennessee House of Representatives and was married to Sarah, he began getting really close to Andrew Jackson. Remember, Andrew Jackson was a family friend of James. He, Jackson and his dad went way back, and Andrew Jackson was a super close family friend of his wife, Sarah. In fact, Sarah literally had referred to Andrew Jackson as Uncle Andrew as a child. And now James and Andrew are getting a lot closer. The two have really similar political positions. James Knox Polk supports Andrew Jackson's run for presidency in 1824. And yeah, it doesn't go anywhere, but the two become political allies and they start getting linked with each other. James Knox Polk even gets the nickname Young Hickory because Andrew Jackson is known as Old Hickory, and suddenly people are seeing James Knox Polk as Andrew Jackson 2.0. In August 1824, James Knox Polk runs to be a member of Congress. He's only 29 at the time, and some people are like, eh, that might be a little young to be a congressman, but James Knox Polk isn't having any of it. After all, his hero, Andrew Jackson, is a senator, so why not join him in Washington? During his run to be a congressman, he campaigns so hard that Sarah is like, cool it, James, you might kill yourself because you're working so hard, but James isn't going to be stopped. And as it turns out, he was right. He wins the 1824 congressional election. And as it turns out, he's going to keep winning congressional elections. James Knox Polk ends up moving to Washington, D.C. in 1825. For now, he's going to leave Sarah behind in Tennessee. He lives in a boarding house in D.C. with another congressman from Tennessee named Sam Houston. And remember, Initially, Sam and James hadn't exactly been friends, but the two put their past conflict behind and 
become roommates. James Knox Polk gives his first big speech in March 1826. In the speech, he pushes for a law that would have made the Electoral College illegal and would have had the president be whoever won the popular vote. And while this seems pretty radical, both then and now, it makes sense for James Knox Polk to support this policy. Remember, Andrew Jackson had just lost the presidency to John Quincy Adams due to that pesky electoral college. For Polk's first two terms as a congressman, he's going to be really focused on being super against John Quincy Adams and everything that John Quincy Adams tries to do. He's literally going to be voting against any legislation that John Quincy Adams proposes. In the 1828 campaign, surprise, surprise, James Knox Polk is going to be a major advisor to Andrew Jackson. And once Andrew Jackson wins the White House, Polk is going to be one of Jackson's main supporters in the House of Representatives, and is just going to be pushing for anything that Andrew Jackson wants, which will lead to rumors throughout Washington, D.C. that James Knox Polk is going to be writing legislation for Jackson, as well as writing vetoes for Andrew Jackson. Polk is going to deny this. He's going to say, I'm an independent man. I'm doing my own thing. It just so happens that Jackson and I are parallel in a lot of policies. During Andrew Jackson's presidency, the big thing that Polk is going to be dealing with is, of course, the bank war, aka Andrew Jackson's attempt to get rid of the National Bank of the United States. Obviously, James Knox Polk is a huge fan of getting rid of the National Bank. He personally doesn't like the bank, because he feels like it is too focused on helping people in New England and not focused enough on helping Westerners. It's less about the idea of it being like a federal system, but he still wants to get rid of it. And because James Knox Polk serves on the House Ways and Means Committee, he has quite a bit of power over the bank. So he's going to write a report that really strongly condemns the bank which Andrew Jackson is then able to use to veto rechartering the bank. And of course, James Knox Polk is going to support Jackson's veto on rechartering the bank, even though it is super controversial. In December 1833, Polk becomes the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, and he then uses this position to further support Jackson's attempts to weaken the National Bank. He supports Jackson's move that takes money from the National Bank and puts it into State's Bank, and he ends up writing the legislation that allows Andrew Jackson to use pet banks to further undermine the National Bank and eventually destroy the National Bank completely. The other big thing that Polk is going to do during his time in Congress is deal with the nullification crisis, which I have now talked about in multiple episodes. So I'm not really going to go into detail on the ins and outs of it. Basically, James Knox Polk starts out supporting South Carolina during the nullification crisis because he politically supports 
low tariffs. But once John C. Calhoun actually is like, let's succeed from the United States, James Knox Polk is like, eh, let's not do that. I'm pro Andrew Jackson. Let's keep the union together. When in doubt, when it comes to policy, James Knox Polk's policy is going to be, what would Jackson do? WWJD. While all this is going on, in 1833, James Knox Polk is going to dip his toe back into religion. He is going to convert to the Methodist Church after a camp meeting. Basically, in the 1830s, we are seeing this wave of religious revivals throughout the United States, and one for and one type of these revivals are these sort of open air camp meetings with these very charismatic preachers who just like stand up and speak. And James Knox Polk goes to one and he is converted. While he had been raised Presbyterian, he had never been super into that faith, so he shifts to a more Methodist direction. However, both his mother and his wife are still very Presbyterian, so he continues attending Presbyterian services and won't actually become officially baptized into the Methodist Church until he is literally on his deathbed. But I do think it is important to note the shift in his personal faith around this time because it does play into James Knox Polk's continued identity as someone who is sort of more a religious at a time in American history where people do have really, really strong religious beliefs. And it is interesting that he is a little bit more on the fence. After his conversion experience in 1834, James Knox Polk is going to be the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. The old Speaker had stepped down to become a minister to England, and Polk decides, hey, I'm going to run to be Speaker of the House. He has Andrew Jackson's support, so he really easily wins the election. Being Speaker of the House is huge for James Knox Polk. He is now one of the most influential men in Washington, D.C. He finally moves his wife into D.C. They buy their own house in Washington, D.C. They're now the center of D.C. society. It's really, really exciting. And not only is he the center of D.C. society, he's also the center of Washington, D.C. politics. And as it turns out, James Knox Polk is very effective as speaker. He is very, very good at forcing the House of Representatives to do what he wants. And in that respect, he reminds me of another president with three names, Martin Van Buren. Both of them are very closely tied to Andrew Jackson and are very good at getting the Jacksonian agenda through Washington. In 1839, after Andrew Jackson is done being president. James Knox Polk also leaves Washington, D.C. He moves back to Tennessee and decides to become governor. As governor of Tennessee, he's very focused on sort of having an Andrew Jackson-esque policy, especially towards the state banks. This policy is going to fail because, as we might recall from the Martin Van Buren study guide, 
Andrew Jackson's financial policies kind of led to a nationwide economic depression, and as it turns out, Tennessee is in crazy bad debt. As a result of this debt, James Knox Polk is going to lose re-election for governor in 1841. At the time, Tennessee governors only served two-year sentences. He's going to run again for governor in 1843, but he loses his campaign in 1843. And the second loss is a huge blow for Polk. It makes it seem like his political career is over. Both times he runs against the same candidate, James Jones, who is sort of seen as a sort of casual, laid-back candidate, whereas James Knox Polk is very, like, uptight and serious. In both elections, the loss is fairly close. He only loses by about 3,000 votes, but it doesn't really matter. By 1843, James Knox Polk seems like a total has-been who just won't have a political career anymore. He goes back to his family farm and sort of just chills there. He's done. But he's not done. Because in 1844, James Knox Polk is going to become president of the United States. How the fuck are we going to get there? By the time 1844 came around, the Democratic Party was kind of a hot mess. When it came time for the Democratic Convention, no one knew who to nominate. Martin Van Buren wanted to attempt running again, but everyone felt like he was too old. His last presidency went terribly. He had kind of alienated himself from the Southern Democrats due to his brand new anti-slavery stance, and he was also against annexing Texas, which was a hot new take that a lot of Southern Democrats just didn't support. And then the Democratic Party added a new bylaw into their platform, which said that the nominee needed two-thirds approval in order to get the nomination. Basically, the convention got stuck between Martin Van Buren and Lewis Cass of Michigan a.k.a. that guy who had helped sign all those peace treaties with William Henry Harrison. The convention ended up being deadlocked. Van Buren knew he wasn't going to win the nomination and ended up throwing his support behind the absolute rando that was James Knox Polk. James Knox Polk was like, wait, what? I'm just here to be the nominee for vice president. I would make a really good vice presidential nominee if Martin Van Buren was the president because I'm from the South, I have my slavery bona fides, and I would balance out the Northern Martin Van Buren perfectly. I am not expecting to be nominated for president. But once he had Martin Van Buren's support, that's all he needed. James Knox Polk got the two-thirds approval on the ninth ballot of voting at 2 p.m. May 30th, 1844. He was suddenly the Democrats' nominee to be president. James Knox Polk's presidential platform involved strict constructionism to the Constitution in opposition to any 
federally funded internal improvements, aka opposing a national bank, aka exactly what Andrew Jackson would have wanted. His platform also included pushing for the U.S. getting control of Oregon and annexing Texas as soon as possible. During his run for president, he had to walk a really fine line between pleasing the Southern Democrats who wanted Texas and pleasing people in the North who weren't so sure about Texas. That's why he added in that whole, let's grab control of Oregon. After all, Oregon's up in the North. It definitely would not be a slave state. So grab Texas, grab Oregon. We please both sides. That's why James Knox Polk had that famous slogan, 5440 or fight, because 5440 marked the latitude line for the Oregon border that he was pushing for. The Whigs, meanwhile, end up running Henry Clay as their nominee. Henry Clay tries to run on a more anti-slavery platform, which doesn't go all that well, because when you look at that, it turns out Henry Clay owns slaves. Overall, the 1844 campaign is extremely dirty. The Whigs call Polk a nobody and a blighted burr that has fallen from the mane of the warhorse from the Hermitage, aka they were really trying to tie James Knox Polk to Andrew Jackson, who was no longer that popular. Meanwhile, the Democrats attack Clay for being a womanizer and an abolitionist, which he wasn't, and for hanging out with prostitutes, which he might have done. The Democratic attacks on Clay were particularly harsh because Andrew Jackson had blamed Henry Clay for the news reports that had called his dead wife a bigamist. Ultimately, James Knox Polk barely beat Clay. The difference in the popular vote was less than 40,000 votes. Although he did win slightly more in the Electoral College, 170 votes to 105 votes. Ultimately, the election of 1844 came down to New York State, where the third-party candidate was able to pull votes away from Henry Clay. Because, as always, it comes down to a third-party candidate. The 1844 election really does show the importance of party loyalty and the fact that a two-party system existed. Most people in the election chose based on whether or not they thought that Texas should join the U.S. instead of their personal feelings about either candidate. At the time that he won the election, James Knox Polk was 49. He was the youngest president to be elected at the time. As president, James Knox Polk had a deal with three big issues. The tariff, the bank, and slavery. He also would have to deal with the international issue that would become the Mexican-American War. So let's take his presidency issue by issue instead of doing it chronologically. We should break it up domestically with tariff, bank, slavery, and then look at the Mexican-American War separately. So, first up, the tariffs. James Knox Polk had technically ran on an anti-protective tariff platform a la Andrew Jackson, 
But very quickly after becoming president, he realized that, oh my goodness, look at that. Tariffs can actually be helpful in raising money for the federal government. So yeah, that's awkward. His treasury secretary, Robert Walker, pushes for really low tariffs. But that's really unpopular in the North because low tariffs hurt merchants and bankers. But low tariffs are really popular in the South and the West because they give buyers more options that are super cheap. Very soon, there's a deadlock over what we should do about the tariff. And James Knox Polk's vice president has he break a tie about the tariffs in the Senate. The Walker tariff, aka these very low tariffs, does end up passing in 1846. Post-tariff, James Knox Polk is on a win, and he wants to continue winning. His next plan is to bring back Martin Van Buren's treasury plan, which the Whigs had actually gotten rid of in 1841. This treasury plan is to make sure that the National Bank will never come back. Once again, James Knox Polk wins. He creates a system where the federal government gets to run federal funds, including hard currency. This plan prevents speculation that would cause another major economic depression without actually needing a national bank. James Knox Polk is two for two. This is amazing. Like, no other president has done this well. But his run of success isn't going to continue. Because in 1846, we get a thing called the Wilmot Proviso, which makes slavery a major issue in Congress once again. And as talented as James Knox Polk is, slavery is never going to be a winning issue for any president. Basically, we have this representative from Pennsylvania, David Wilmot, who does not like slavery. And he adds an amendment to a spending bill that must be passed that says slavery cannot be allowed in any land that the U.S. may or may not get from Mexico. Because this amendment is on a spending bill, the House has to vote on the amendment. And when the votes come in, something weird happens. The voting isn't based on party line, but is solely based on regional origin. Basically, all the representatives from the North vote on it, no matter what party they belong to, and all the representatives from the South vote against it, no matter what party they belong to. The Wilmot Proviso ends up hurting James Knox Polk. He's president when it happens, and he doesn't do anything to prevent it from being voted on. He could have attempted to compromise with Wilmot and get it added to a less important bill. And he doesn't. Also, it hurts Polk because the Wilmot Proviso allows John C. Calhoun to reinsert himself into the narrative. And as we all know, whenever John C. Calhoun jumps back in, a mess is sure to follow. John C. Calhoun is really into states' rights, and he's willing to take it into crazy extreme directions. John C. Calhoun says that when it comes to the Wilmot Proviso, the Missouri Compromise is fake and should be ignored, even though that means throwing out 25 years of precedent, and that P. 
people should be allowed to take slaves wherever they want because slaves are property and the federal government can't regulate property. James Knox Polk listens to this, his eyes wide, more than a little freaked out, and says, yeah, no, John, we're not going that far. Um, the Missouri Compromise line exists, and we're going to compromise it even further and just extend it to the Pacific Ocean. James Knox Polk does get his way. The Senate and House agree to just extend the Missouri Compromise line, but it's not great. We've restarted this debate over slavery and where and when it applies to territories, which is a conversation that no one really wants to have. And James Knox Polk could have prevented this conversation, but he didn't. So those are the big domestic things that James Knox Polk had to deal with. Two decent wins and one not-so-great loss. So next... Let's talk about the foreign policy stuff, a.k.a. the Mexican-American War. The Mexican-American War starts with Texas, because of course it does. Basically, in the waning days of John Tyler's presidency, he had pushed for a resolution for annexing Texas through the Senate. Because it was a joint resolution, it only needed a majority to pass, not a two-thirds majority like a normal treaty would, so it does get through. Three days before James Knox Polk's inauguration, Texas becomes a state. Huzzah! But then Texas immediately moves its militia into some disputed territory by the Nueces River, and Mexico immediately breaks off diplomatic relations with the United States. So James Knox Polk now gets to deal with a really pissed off Mexico. And to make matters worse, England then jumps in. England is interested in maybe buying California for reasons that are unclear to me as a Californian, because we never learned about that in social studies, because who cares about England? This completely freaks out the United States, because England had tried to meddle in Texas before and turn Texas into a free territory gasp, and no one wants that happening again. So James Knox Polk sends troops down to the disputed bit of land between Texas and Mexico and sends an envoy down to Mexico to negotiate. The Mexican president at the time is like, yeah, I'm willing to maybe sell California to the U.S. to prevent more drama, but then there's a bit of a revolt in Mexico, so this negotiation goes nowhere. A few months later, in April 1846, some Mexican soldiers cross the Rio Grande and kill 11 American soldiers. It's unclear if the death of these American soldiers happened on American land or on Mexican land because, remember, this land was under dispute. James Knox Polk says the land was American. Mexicans invaded America and killed American soldiers on American land. But some northern pro-abolitionist congressmen disagree, including one named Abraham Lincoln, who's like, no, it was Mexican land. The Mexican soldiers were doing nothing wrong. 
Show me exactly where the blood was shed. Show me the proof. There's a little bit of a debate in Congress, but most of Congress was like, yeah, the land was American land. Let's declare war. And war was declared on May 13th, 1846, which just so happens to be my dad's birthday. Happy birthday, Tom. Even though war is declared, there still is a lot of opposition to the war, especially in the North. There's a feeling in the North that this war is just an attempt to expand Southern territory and, by extension, slavery. The war is always going to be unpopular in the North. A lot of leading Northern thinkers, like Henry David Thoreau, refused to support the war and do cool things like not pay taxes and then get arrested. Civil disobedience and all of that. It's very exciting. As it turns out, the war isn't even going to last that long. The United States wins extremely quickly. It starts in May. By September, Zachary Taylor and the U.S. Army have taken the Mexican city of Monterey, beating much larger forces along the way. Then, Stephen Kearney marches from Kansas to Mexico and beats the Mexican army there. He then splits his army in half. Half of the army meets up with Taylor's army at Monterey, and then the other half heads to California and meets up with John C. Fremont in Sonoma and gets involved with making California an independent republic. Huzzah, California! I did learn about this in social studies. Then things get a little bit messy because James Knox Polk kind of overplays his hand. He makes a deal with ex-Mexican general Santa Ana, who the Texans had beat way back in the Texan War for Independence. Santa Ana is like, oh my gosh, yes, pay me $30 million and I will organize a peace treaty for you. And the U.S. government does pay him that $30 million and Santa Ana promptly switches sides. James Knox Polk freaks out, feels like Zachary Taylor is getting way too much power and might declare an unexpected and unwanted armistice with the Mexicans. So he pulls Taylor and sends in a new general, Winfield Scott, down to Texas. Before Scott can get to Texas, though, Taylor beats Santa Ana at the Battle of Buena Vista. So Scott gets the consolation prize of capturing the port of Veracruz and then Mexico City by September 1847, even though he had no supplies and his men had no training. Mexico ends up surrendering before the end of 1847 because, yeah, it's kind of hard to wage a war when you've lost your capital city. So, the U.S. has won. It's time to sign a peace treaty. With the peace treaty, the Democrats are all about that expansion. Some Democrats think that the U.S. should take over all of Mexico. James Knox Polk, though, only wants California. The ultimate treaty, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, ends up giving the United States control of modern-day California, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Nevada, and bits of Colorado and Wyoming. It also officially sets the Texas border at the Rio Grande, which is where it is today. 
Even though the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo gives the United States a shit ton of land, some Democrats are annoyed because they wanted even more land and people just can't be satisfied. While all this is going on, James Knox Polk is also dealing with Oregon. Remember, during his 1844 campaign, he had made that promise to figure out the Oregon-Canada border with England. He had promised to push all the way up to the 45th parallel, which is hella far north, like almost up to Alaska far north. Ultimately, James Knox Polk settles with Canada and sets the border at the 49th parallel because going all the way up to the 40 to the 54th parallel would have caused a war with England and James Knox Polk doesn't want that. He's dealing with the Mexican-American War and the Canada-American War just doesn't have the same ring to it. Also, as we've seen historically, the U.S. just doesn't do well in wars with Canada. After dealing with all of this, having that huge win in the Mexican-American War, James Knox Polk chooses not to run for re-election. After all, he had achieved all of his campaign promises from 1844. He had gotten California. He had dealt with Oregon. He had defeated the National Bank once and for all. Why run again? The 1848 election ends up having the Democrats run Lewis Cass against the Whig nominee of war, of war hero Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor and the Whigs end up winning because the war hero almost always wins in American politics. After stepping down and not running for re-election, James Knox Polk is still super popular. He could have easily won renomination by the Democrats, and I think if he had won renomination, he probably could have won a second term. Because he was still super popular, he decides to go on a little tour of the South after his presidency is up. He gets huge crowds everywhere he went. People want to see this popular president who had pulled a bit of a George Washington and had decided not to seek renomination after he had met his goals. Once his tour was over, James Knox Polk goes back to his brand new estate in Nashville, which was known as Polk Palace. However, he didn't have a lot of time to enjoy this brand new estate. He almost immediately gets sick. It most likely was cholera that he had contracted during his time in New Orleans. He dies on June 15, 1849, only a few months after leaving office in March 1849. This is the shortest gap between a president leaving office and dying in United States history. At the time of his death, he left his estates and slaves to Sarah. He made her promise to free them when she died, but Sarah doesn't die until 1891, so his slaves end up getting freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. In 1893, his body was officially moved from his estate to Nashville and the state capital of Tennessee. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's recap the times and presidency of James Knox Polk. 
even though James Knox Polk is really strongly associated with Tennessee, he was actually born in North Carolina, but he and his family moved to Tennessee when he was a wee lad. His family was basically the first family to live in Maury County, where he grew up, and they became one of the leading families there. As a child, James Knox Polk was amazingly sickly, thanks to some really serious kidney stones that he suffered from. When he was 17, he got a surgery to remove the stones, which he survived, which was no mean feat in the early 1800s, although the surgery almost certainly led to an accidental castration, which left him sterile. After the surgery, James Knox Polk was finally able to be healthy enough to get an education, and he ended up going to UNC, where he joined the debate team and did really well. After college, James Knox Polk began working for a lawyer. He passed the state bar and then served as the clerk for the Tennessee State Senate. He did that for several years, where he made a crap ton of money before running to join the Tennessee House of Delegates, which he did, and then he got married to Sarah Childress. The two had a really strong relationship, even though they had no children, thanks to that accidental castration. Through Sarah Childress, James Knox Polk became really close friends with Andrew Jackson. The two were so close that Polk got the nickname Young Hickory because Jackson was Old Hickory. With Jackson's support, Polk ran and won to be in the House of Representatives. He would serve in the House of Representatives throughout Jackson's time as president. He basically was Jackson's right-hand man and would serve as Speaker of the House during Jackson's presidency. As Speaker of the House, Polk made sure that many of Jackson's more controversial legislation made it through. Once Jackson's presidency was over, Polk also left Washington. He spent a term as governor of Tennessee, but thanks to the economic depression that hit the nation, Polk lost re-election. He ran to be governor one more time and also lost. It really did look like that James Knox Polk was done with politics. But all that changed in 1844. The Democrats were completely deadlocked in choosing who should be their presidential nominee between Martin Van Buren and Lewis Cass. Martin Van Buren dropped out of the race and instead suggested James Knox Polk. Somehow, James Knox Polk became the nominee. He had the Andrew Jackson bona fides, after all, and with Martin Van Buren backing him, it was sort of a foregone conclusion. Suddenly, this Tennessean, whose political career looked like it was dead, was the nominee for president. After an extremely dirty campaign, Polk beat out Henry Clay and was the youngest president in U.S. history at the age of 49. James Knox Polk started out his presidency focusing on domestic issues like low tariffs and getting rid of the National Bank once and for all. But by 1846, tensions with Mexico were at an all-time high. War between Mexico and the U.S. was declared in May 1846 after fighting broke out in a disputed bit of land and Mexican soldiers killed American soldiers. Pretty quickly, the U.S. defeated Mexico thanks to a better army and better strategy. The Treaty of 
Guadalupe Hidalgo gave the U.S. huge chunks of territory in the southwestern United States in what is now modern-day California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and and Wyoming. You get the idea. But it wasn't all fun and games. There was controversy over whether or not this new territory should have slavery or not, which allowed that old vulture, John C. Calhoun, to stick his head in. Ultimately, James Knox Polk put his foot down and said, yeah, the Missouri Compromise is going to apply to this new territory, but the door for a renewed slavery debate was open. While all this was going on, James Knox Polk was also debating with England over where the line between Oregon and Canada should be. While James Knox Polk had said it would be the 54th parallel, ultimately he saddled with the 49th parallel. Satisfied that he had met all of his campaign promises, James Knox Polk did not seek re-election in 1848. He went on a fun giant tour of the South, caught cholera along the way, and died on June 15, 1849, at the age of 53. So, that's James Knox Polk. Honestly, he was a super successful president. He met all of his campaign promises in only four years. I don't think there's been another president who was that efficient. But he did let the slavery discussion come back. And that's going to be a really big issue that's going to haunt the United States for the next four, no, the next five presidencies. And for that reason, I think we are going to have to take a ton of points away from him in terms of was he a good president. Also, being a one-term president, yes, he went out on his own terms, got to give him bonus for efficiency, but I question his scope. Why didn't he want to do more? Like, come on, dude, push yourself. I think he is underrated, but I think there's a reason why he's underrated. For this study guide, most of my research came from John Pinheiro's essays for the Miller Center, John Sagenthaler's book, James Knox Polk, Walter Bornman's biography, Polk, the man who transformed the presidency in America, and Robert Mary's book, A Country of Fast Designs. As always, a complete bibliography will be available on the website, sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next week, the study guide will be on his successor, Zachary Taylor. Also this week, I will be posting a tangent cast for patrons on patreon.com. It will be on John C. Fremont and how California briefly became an independent country. As always, to become a patron and get access to the Tangent Casts, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides at the $5 a month level. Basically, for the price of one coffee, you get access to bi-monthly Tangent Casts. It's really fun. As always, you can reach me on social media, on Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod, or on Instagram for the memes at SadGirlStudy. The best way to support the podcast is to subscribe or let a friend know about it, 
We're available on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher. Also, let me know how I'm doing. Read or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks!